The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. In perhaps his best book of poetry, 1991's Seeing Things, the Irish poet Seamus Heaney has a 12-line poem about memories of childhood, but also how they sort of supported the rest of his life and led into his life with poetry. And while I'm going to read this poem again later, it's worth starting the episode with it right now. He says, I was four but I turned 400 maybe, encountering the ancient dampish feel of a clay floor, maybe 4,000 even. Anyhow, there it was, milk poured for cats in a rank puddle place, splash darkened mold around the terracotta water crock, ground of being, body's deep obedience to all its shifting tenses, a half door opening directly into starlight. Out of that earth house, I inherited a stack of singular, cold memory weights to load me, hand and foot, in the scale of things. And I can't think of another poet uh, in the last 50 or 70 years or so who has put his own biography out there in such a way uh, as and his and his memories of childhood, and of uh, and of the physical labor of the farm, or just of being in this old farmhouse as a child, where you got the flagstones and the milk on the floor for the cats. Uh, someone who just comes right out and says it that these things are cold memory weights to load me, hand and foot in the scale of things to help understand life and balance life and get our bearings and things. This is what poetry does. This is what art does. This is what uh, religion can do too if you have a bent towards it. And so tonight I'm going to read 10 of my favorite poems by Seamus Heaney. And for those of you who don't want to hear the introduction to it, you can skip ahead to maybe minute 23 or so. it's occurred to me that one way of approaching Heaney isn't through all the criticism and all the stuff he has written about himself, which is very easy to find, but one way to do it is to just talk about what he has meant in your own life, and that's what I spend the next 15 or so minutes doing. So if you don't want to hear that, skip ahead to perhaps minute 23 or so to just hear the poems. But we can get right down to it right after this message. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
I still remember where I was. It's sort of the poetic equivalent of the JFK or 9-11 moment. I remember exactly where I was when I came into work one morning in late August of 2013, and I just opened up the New York Times website, and I just gasped, and my heart fell. I saw that Seamus Heaney had died, and when we think of how much, how many times Seamus Heaney was interviewed, uh, how much has been written about him, and how much outside even of his own poetry that he wrote, uh, the the new thing that we can say about Seamus Heaney, it seems, is what he meant to us personally. I suppose this is the the answer for any poet who becomes so famous and so well regarded in their own lifetime. The thing that is most valuable to say about them is your own personal reaction to them, your own personal attachment to them. And I really kind of, I took it very, very hard. Uh, as I'll mention later in this episode, the earliest uh, book of Seamus Heaney's that I ever bought was his translation of Beowulf. And that would have been in the summer, I believe, 2001. By 2005, uh, my wife and I had been living in California and we uh, went to New York City for a few days to visit friends. And there wasn't a better thing to bring home from New York City than uh, a bunch of Seamus Heaney paperbacks of his actual collections of poetry, which I had not read yet. And I spent the next few months gathering the rest of the rest of them, the ones that I couldn't find in New York City. And it turns out that my copy of The Spirit Level, which I believe came out in 1996, uh, my copy of that actually has his signature in it. And I have no idea how I was able to get it uh, by a copy of it used. I can only assume that the person who was selling it used uh, never bothered to open it. But he was the first poet who was still alive that I had an intense attachment to. There were others, I guess, at the end of high school, like Lawrence Ferlinghetti or Allen Ginsberg, but my attachment to those guys sort of uh, never got to the level that it did with Seamus Heaney. I think I was also, it's because I was also in the middle of writing my Civil War poem to the House of the Sun, and the main character in that, the protagonist in that, is an Irish immigrant to America, and so I felt even more um, sort of nudged into getting into Seamus Heaney's work as the sound of someone Irish. I'd already gone through Joyce in my own way, and I hadn't really found my way into Yeats yet, but uh, with Seamus Heaney, there it was. And he's someone that I felt, and this is true of Whitman too, I believe, uh, people become not just fans of their work, but they they feel great affection for them, as if as if I knew Seamus Heaney. I never did. I did send him uh, a letter at uh, Harvard and said some probably embarrassing things, and uh, that's probably why I never heard back. But uh, he was the first poet who was still living that I really became attached to and uh, who I really sought out and sort of followed as he was going along. And 
his death in 2013 really hit me for another reason, too. Uh, I had finished my Civil War poem to the House of the Sun in late 2007, and I spent the next four or so years uh, revising it and adding to it, and uh, it was eventually published in 2015. But in 2013, when Heaney died, uh, it was safe to say that I hadn't really written a great deal of poetry since I finished The House of the Sun. I hadn't written anything uh, successful, you might say. I had tried to write prose poems and, and uh, other... I tried to write prose poems and other poems around history, but they never coalesced. A collection of them never found uh, very much shape. And I felt kind of listless and sort of without direction. And it was in early 2013, before Heaney died, that I was walking in the woods at a nature preserve nearby, Beechwood Nature Reserve. And I remembered a remark by W.H. Auden, which said that if you were going to write free verse, you sort of needed to have a perfect ear. And in the spring of 2013, I figured, well, I will get back to it and try to have that perfect ear. Um, the, the thing that was holding me back and the thing that got me into, um, and that got me into writing prose poetry was that I didn't know where to break the line anymore. That might sound like a strange thing to keep me from writing poetry, but that was the truth. And I was trying to write basically free verse, just catching it by the ear for a few months in 2013, and then Heaney died, and I wanted to try and to do something else. Now, Heaney rejected the tag of formalist. I don't think he could be called a formal poem by any, uh, by any definition of that word. Um, he enjoyed using form, but what he seemed to use it mostly for um, was as a way of calling back older voices in the history of poetry. In many cases, he was calling back the Eddic poetry or the, the medieval Irish poetry and of William Wordsworth as well. Um, and I realized that is something that I needed to do myself. I had spent uh, a great deal of The House of the Sun, all of my reading, all the stuff that went into it, all the mythological stuff that went into it, um, it was translations of ancient poetry, ancient Near Eastern, Hindu, Roman, Celtic, Norse, um, Central American, all that stuff. All of it was translated. And it wasn't really until I was responding to Heaney's death that I decided to go back into the history of poetry written in English. And that's really what I've been doing ever since then, on top of doing the mythological stuff as well. And so Heaney was really my way back into writing poetry. And I jumped right back into it uh, uh, fairly quickly. And it was in 2018 when my book Bone Antler Stone was published, my book of poems about the archaeology of ancient Europe. And that is what I think of when I think of Seamus Heaney. What his death meant to me. And I remember, I believe, I got the news of his death on a Thursday or a Friday. And I went out on that Saturday morning 
the following Saturday morning, one or two days after I got the news. And I went to a used bookstore where, where I always buy my blank books. And I found the most unattractive looking book that you could find for writing poetry is extremely narrow. And I began to fill it with uh, the first poetry that came to mind. And I bought that narrow book because I did not want to get seduced by the form or the look of any of it on the page. I wanted to simply sound out some equivalent of iambic pentameter and just rely on the sound itself and not become entranced by what it looked like on the page, breaking stanzas or having matching four-line stanzas or whatever it would be. And I figured if I fill up this book, uh, I will continue to do this and I'll buy a larger blank book where I can sort of spread out. And that's what I did. And I really haven't stopped doing that since. And that's uh, the short of it, of my attachment to Heaney, my very personal sense of attachment to him. He was born in 1939 and he died in 2013, as I said. And it just makes sense that someone as personable, apparently personable and decent as him, uh, the last recorded words we have of him is being in hospital and texting his son the Latin for don't be afraid. There are so many of these little anecdotes about Heaney. Um, just being a decent guy and uh, someone that you could uh, admire personally as well just as an artist, just as a poet. And as an example of someone who has a great deal to say about what this podcast has been um, has been taken up with, uh, how does Homer take out the garbage? How do you live with poetry and live with the rest of your life? Um, I can't think of anybody else in the last 70 or so years that we have so much information on and we can learn so much from in this sense than Seamus Heaney. And his, you can find uh, a great deal about his life story basically anywhere. I've left a few links and the episode description about this. But the basic idea is he was born in Northern Ireland. Um, he lived a rural childhood, a rural upbringing. He ended up going to Queen's University, Belfast, and he got involved with the poetry scene there, and very soon became uh, wrapped up in uh, the troubles that occurred in the 70s and onwards from there. He ended up uh, getting teaching positions, and I believe it was in the early 70s, or throughout the 70s here and there. He ended up making trips to America, being sort of visiting professors, I believe in California was one of the places. And he came back to to Ireland after that, and I believe in the early or maybe in 1973 or so, he left Northern Ireland to live just outside of Dublin. And that in itself was considered to be a sort of personal statement to leave the North and to settle outside of Dublin. Uh, he was eventually there with his family, his three children, and I believe by 1980 he got the famous post that he ended up with at Harvard and spent, I think it was a semester or so, every year until the late 90s maybe, uh, at Harvard every year. And he won the Nobel Prize in 1995 and all along the way just sort of gathered up uh, most of the prizes you can think of and the admiration and the adulation, famous Seamus, 
was what his detractors called him, among other things. But it was true. And when he died, um, it was said that 70,000 people in an Irish football stadium uh, gave him three minutes of silence. And how the hell do you like that? I can't think of any American writer um, who would get the same treatment, let alone an American poet. And I just wanted to share, because uh, Heaney wrote so much, and it's very easy to find, and so much has been written about him that is also very easy to find. I just wanted to read two things uh, that have meant the most to me of what Seamus Heaney himself said, and then we can just get to what seemed to me to be ten of his best poems. And I was very lucky that my first book, the first book of his that I bought, was his translation of Beowulf, because his introduction to it is so personable and so wonderful. He is not uh, dusting off a relic on a shelf. He is showing us in this introduction how you make this very old poem your own, not just as a reader, but also as a writer. And he he is wondering about how to, or he's talking about how he decided to translate the very first word of this old English poem. The first line in Beowulf is, Hwatwe Gardena in Geor Dagum. And that, that word Hwat, or Hwait, H-W-A-E-T, is usually translated, as Heaney notes, as Lo, hark, behold, attend, listen, all of these other things. And Heaney is wondering, uh, this is sort of a, a way of beginning a story. It's another, another version of once upon a time or sit down and listen. And this is Heaney's uh, description of how he came to figure out what word he should use and how that was a clue for the rest of the poem. He says, uh, it is one thing to find lexical meanings for the words and to have some feel for how the meter might go, but it is quite another thing to find the tuning fork that will give you the note and the pitch for the overall music of the work. Without some melody sensed or promised, it is simply impossible for a poet to establish the translator's right of way into and through a text. I was therefore lucky to hear this enabling note almost straight away, a familiar local voice, one that had belonged to relatives of my father's, people whom I had once described in a poem as big-voiced scullions, and you'll hear that poem later on in this episode where that phrase comes from. And he says, I called them big-voiced because when the men of the family spoke, and this is, these are rural men, and as Heaney always describes his father and his uncles and the men of his family, they, they're, they're very often going to, uh, to buy or sell cattle. That is what, one of some of his deepest memories of his family. And he says, uh, when the men of my family spoke, the words they uttered came across with a weighty distinctness. Phonetic units as separate and defined as delf platters on a dresser shelf. A simple sentence such as, we cut the corn today, took on immense dignity when one of the scullions spoke it. They had a kind of Native American solemnity of utterance, as if they were announcing verdicts rather than making small talk. And when I came to ask myself how I wanted Beowulf to sound in my version, I realized 
I wanted it to be speak, speakable by one of those relatives, by one of those big voice scullions, one of his uncles, his father, or his cousins. I therefore tried to frame the famous opening lines and cadences that would have suited their voices, but that still echoed with the sound and the sense of the Anglo-Saxon, Huatwe Gardena in Gerardagum. And Heaney says, conventional renderings, as I mentioned, uh, lo, hark, behold, attend, listen. But in Hiberno-English, scullion speak, Heaney says, the particle so came naturally to the rescue, because in that idiom, so operates as an expression which obliterates all previous discourse and narrative, and at the same time, it functions as an exclamation calling for immediate attention. So it was. And he translates the first three lines of Beowulf. So, the spear Danes in days gone by, and the kings who ruled them had courage and greatness. We have heard of those princes' heroic campaigns. And that great so, as if someone has just sat down across from you at a table, their elbows have made a noise on the table, and so, listen to this. What luck to have come upon that. Uh, when I was least expecting it. And the second thing comes from uh, the only book right now that I would recommend for anyone who hasn't looked at Heaney at all, and that is Stepping Stones, Interviews with Seamus Heaney by Dennis O'Driscoll. Uh, Dennis O'Driscoll uh, interviewed Seamus Heaney over the course of many years, and he did so so thoroughly that this book is basically Heaney's autobiography. And until his letters, Seamus Heaney's letters, come out in October, when they're set to be released in the UK, um, those two books, I imagine, will be just great treasure troves for many years to come. But one of the things of Heaney's that has always sort of been a buttress for me, just supported me, is when he's talking about his 1991 book called Seeing Things. And he's talking about the ups and downs of a career, not just of a career of someone like Seamus Heaney, someone who is known and whose books are waited for by an eager audience, but just, just anybody who happens to create. And what are the ups and downs? What are the waves um, of a creative life? And this is what Heaney has to say about it. He says, I believe the three phases of a creative life, uh, they turn out to be cyclic that there are renewed surges of endeavor in your life and your art, and that, in every case, the movement involves a pattern of getting started, keeping going, and getting started again. Some books are a matter of keeping going, and some, if you're lucky, get you started again. Seeing things was a new start. There, for once, the old saw came true. Life began, or began again, at 50. And indeed, uh, in what I'm about to read to you, uh, I share the most poems from the book called Seeing Things. Three out of the ten come from that book. And what I take from this, again, is the idea of how does Homer take out the garbage. What I take from this isn't the, uh, the outlook, for instance, of someone like Jack Kerouac, who wants to be, uh, in that famous phrase of his, I can't quote uh, exactly, where he wants to be around the weird people, the energetic people, uh, the people no one else will want to talk to, but who are just high on life, 
those are the people he wants to be around. The ones who are burning the candle at both ends and are sort of uh, throttling into the night and they have no idea where they're going. All they know is that they are alive. Uh, what Heaney's lesson is to me is of uh, just patience, uh, forbearance, uh, maybe even a bit of caution, but of just slowly over the years accumulating and getting the work done. It's a very unbohemian thing. And I think that is why, especially for me, the poems of his that I am drawn to the most and that you're about to hear, uh, they center around uh, family, they center around memory, they center around childhood, they center around nature, um, the history of language and of poetry, as well as the history of the more unseemly aspects of life as well. But they are taken in a very sort of measured and memorable and heightened way that will assure that Heaney's poetry lasts for as long as we are reading poetry in English. So let's get down to 10 essential poems from Seamus Heaney. So the poem that Seamus Heaney is known for, even today, seems to be the very first poem in his first collection, that poem called Digging. And from the start, and this may be a clue into his success, he seems to have known the difference between a good poem that would connect with many, many, many people and a great poem that might not connect with so many people. And you can see that just in the arrangement of his very first book. He starts with, starts off with digging, which to me has never seemed to be uh, his best poem at all. But he ends with one of his best poems, a poem called Personal Helicon, where he takes all of the concerns that are in digging, uh, the ideas of family and of nature and the farm that he grew up on, and also how to integrate his burgeoning interests in poetry and history and all the rest of it uh, into the nature and into the land that he grew up among and around and working on. How to do that? Uh, it's personal helicon, it seems to me, where he does that best, and uh, at least in his first collection. And it seems to me the great clue as to what he would end up doing eventually, uh, that there is not just some sort of homey wisdom that uh, Seamus Heaney has. That seems to be what his detractors accuse him of. He's all happiness and light uh, somehow. Even his, uh, even his poems about violence, they seem to say, are kind of, uh, I don't know, inappropriately done. But when you look at a poem like Personal Helicon, you can see where he is going from the start. And this is what it says. As a child, they could not keep me from wells and old pumps with buckets and windlasses. I loved the dark drop, the trapped sky, the smells of waterweed, fungus and dank moss. One in a brickyard with a rotted board top. I savored the rich crash when a bucket plummeted down at the end of a rope 
so deep you saw no reflection in it. A shallow one under a dry stone ditch, fructified like any aquarium. When you dragged out long roots from the soft mulch, a white face hovered over the bottom. Others had echoes, gave back your own call with a clean new music in it. And one was scarcome for there, out of ferns and tall foxgloves, a rat slapped across my reflection. Now, to pry into roots, to finger slime, to stare, big-eyed Narcissus, into some spring, is beneath all adult dignity. I rhyme to see myself, to set the darkness echoing. And of course, that also brings up his great preoccupation, which is childhood and what, I suppose, what education means, um, while also not losing uh, contact with that earliest ground, that earliest mind, that earliest fascination. The second poem I would choose from Seamus Heaney comes from his second collection, and it's called The Forge. And it's funny, you look at, um, I believe, one of the book, the Dennis O'Driscoll book of interviews with Heaney, and it gives a, a map of his uh, childhood home, his childhood, uh, the area around his childhood farm. And there's a part that just says this is where the actual forge from the poem called The Forge is. And look at what he does, just, uh, just in a few lines, talking about something that he walked by you know, every day or many times a week in his childhood, uh, a man working at a forge. But what he does with this seems to me something that will stand for all time as long as people are reading poetry in English. He says, all I know is a door into the dark. Outside, old axles and iron hoops rusting. Inside, the hammered anvil's short-pitched ring. The unpredictable fantail of sparks, or hiss, when a new shoe toughens in water. The anvil must be somewhere in the center, horned as a unicorn, at one end square, set there immovable an altar where he expends himself in shape and music. Sometimes, leather-aproned, hairs in his nose, he leans out on the jam, recalls a clatter of hoofs where traffic is flashing in rows, then grunts and goes in with a slam and a flick to beat real iron out to work the bellows. And there is so much suggested just in this simple description of labor. And of course, what I always imagine what he's doing, what Heaney does so well in his best poetry, is that he is equating the manual labor that he participated in and also just witnessed from his childhood. He is equating that um, with the writing of poetry and the experience of poetry. And then you come to a poem, I believe, this is from his third collection, a poem called Bogland, 
and this is where the uh, the bog stuff starts to come into his poetry, not completely until his 1975 book called North. But look at what he does with the underground again, and with history, and with the bottomlessness and the 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 wetness underground and of the past, and also just think of mythology here, and of as well of poetry. This is called Bogland, and he dedicated this to his friend T.P. Flanagan. He says, We have no prairies to slice a big sun at evening. Everywhere the eye concedes to encroaching horizon is wooed into the cyclops' eye of a tarn. Our unfenced country is bog, that keeps crusting between the sights of the sun. They've taken the skeleton of the great Irish elk out of the peat, set it up an astounding crate full of air. Butter, sunk under more than a hundred years, was recovered salty and white. The ground itself is a kind black butter, melting and opening underfoot, missing its last definition by millions of years. They'll never dig coal here, only the waterlogged trunks of great firs, soft as pulp. Our pioneers keep striking inwards and downwards. Every layer they strip seems camped on before. The bog holes might be Atlantic seepage, the wet center is bottomless. It's incredible. And finally you get to a poem called The Tolland Man. And this again is his response to that book of uh, photographs of the bog bodies that were recovered from uh, from peat bogs in uh, in northern Europe, where the the bodies of these people who died more than two thousand years ago um, have been so well preserved that one of the books I read about this say that you could take their fingerprints, um, and just the haunting image of what these what these people mean these bodies in the bogs and the horrific ways in which they died and the evidence that is still on them because their bodies are so well preserved. And this is what Seamus Heaney has to say about the Tolland man. Someday I will go to Arhus to see his peat-brown head, the mild pods of his eyelids, his pointed skin cap. In the flat country nearby, where they dug him out, his last gruel of winter seeds, caked in his stomach, naked except for the cape, noose, and girdle, I will stand a long time. Bridegroom to the goddess, she tightened her torque on him and opened her fen, those dark juices working him to a saint's kept body. Trove of the turf cutter's honeycombed workings, now his stained face reposes at Arhus. I could risk blasphemy, 
consecrate the cauldron bog our holy ground, and pray him to make germinate the scattered, ambushed flesh of laborers, stocking the corpses laid out in the farmyards, tell-tale skin and teeth flecking the sleepers of four young brothers, trailed for miles along the lines. Something of his sad freedom, as he rode the tumbrel, should come to me, driving, saying the names Tolland, Grabal, Nebelgard, watching the pointing hands of country people, not knowing their tongue. Out here in Jutland, in the old man-killing parishes, I will feel lost, unhappy, and at home. And of course, Tolland, Tolland man, Grabal and Nebelgard, these are all sites where bog bodies have been found. And here you get a sense of Heaney's uh, strange relationship to Catholicism. He's surrounded by uh, the Catholicism that he was raised with, and which he says many times kept his mother going throughout her long and difficult life. Um, he's surrounded by this violence in his own life, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and he is surrounded by the history of violence in Ireland itself, whether uh, wrought by the English or not. And as someone who now is becoming aware of these bog bodies, he is aware of that violence as well. And where does Catholicism, where does the Catholicism that he was raised with, and where even does a mature Catholicism or faith in Christianity land in situations like these, especially when you consider that the Troubles were religiously inspired. And he seems to say at some point that, uh, not that paganism uh, is better, but just that uh, understanding it, or understanding what paganism was uh, 2,000 or 2,500 years ago, might also give a clue as to what we are dealing with now. Um, and it's interesting that in Bogland, he's talking uh, about how uh, we have no prairies. And he wrote that poem after being in California for a few years, I believe, as, as that was. And he's always coming back to uh, what we are finding in the ground and what that means, um, the dead or great preservation, great discoveries. Um, he says, our pioneers keep striking inwards and downwards. Again, it's not just uh, the literal history that is under there, but it is the poetry and the stories and the words of historians of the great Irish storytelling tradition. The description of the man at his forge. Um, let's see. Uh, sometimes leather aproned hairs in his nose. That sounds like an almost comic figure out of a myth. This is what Heaney is involved with here. And now we come to perhaps his best single poem about the troubles where he is addressing them directly, not through the evidence of the bog bodies and what ancient violence can tell us about modern violence, but uh, looking it straight in the face. This is in memory of his cousin, Colin McCartney, and this is a poem called The Strand at Lochbeg, 
And again, if you go looking in the in the map of Heaney's childhood environs in the Dennis O'Driscoll book, um, I was surprised to see it. The strand at Lochbeg is right there. It's not very far uh, from where Heaney would have uh, grown up. And um, as an epigraph to the poem, he includes these lines from Dante's Purgatorio, the first uh, canto of it. And it says, all round this little island on the strand, far down below there, where the breakers strive, grow the tall rushes from the oozy sand. And this is what he has to say about the, the murder of his cousin uh, by sectarian violence, I believe in 1975. And this wasn't published until the book called Fieldwork that came out in 1979. This is what he says about his cousin. Uh, leaving the white glow of filling stations and a few lonely street lamps among fields, you climb the hills toward Newtown Hamilton, past the fuse forest out beneath the stars. Along the road, a high bare pilgrim's track where Sweeney fled before the bloodied heads, goats, beards, and dog's eyes in a demon pack, blazing out of the ground, snapping and squealing. What blazed ahead of you? A faked roadblock? The red lamp swung, the sudden brakes, and stalling engine, voices, heads hooded, and the cold-nosed gun? Or in your driving mirror, tailing headlights that pulled out suddenly and flagged you down where you weren't known and far from what you knew. The lowland clays and waters of Lochbeg, Church Island's spire, its soft tree line of you. There you used to hear guns fired behind the house long before rising time when duck shooters haunted the marigolds and bulrushes but still were scared to find spent cartridges, acrid, brassy, genital, ejected, on your way across the strand to fetch the cows. For you and yours and yours and mine fought shy, spoke an old language of conspirators, and could not crack the whip or seize the day. Big-voiced scullions, herders, feeling round haycocks and hindquarters, talkers in the byres, slow arbitrators of the burial ground. Across that strand of ours, the cattle graze up to their bellies in an early mist, and now they turn their unbewildered gaze to where we work our way through the squeaking sedge, drowning in dew. Like a dull blade with its edge, Honed bright, Lochbeg half shines under the haze. I turn because the sweeping of your feet has stopped behind me to find you on your knees with blood and roadside muck in your hair and eyes. Then kneel in front of you in brimming grass and gather up cold handfuls of the dew to wash you, cousin. I dab you clean with moss, fine as the drizzle out of a low cloud. I lift you under the arms and lay you flat, with rushes that shoot green again, 
I plait green scapulars to wear over your shroud. And that is sort of his elegy for his cousin uh, who was murdered. And uh, reading that again, I haven't read this probably since the last time I recorded it uh, on this podcast, is that um, he's even hesitant to get to the murder of his cousin. Uh, he has to bring in his favorite Irish mythical character, Sweeney, first, uh, where Sweeney fled before the bloodied heads, goat beards and dog's eyes and a demon pack. Um, he has to do all of that. He has to talk about uh, the relatives and the friends around the area, uh, big-voiced scullions, herders, feeling around haycocks and hindquarters, talking in byres, slow arbitrators of the burial ground. And it's not really until the very end of the last stanza that he turns and faces his cousin uh, directly and says what he says there. And this sort of is a... Um, a premonition of Heaney's next collection, uh, Station Island, which I don't read any poems from here, but it's his perhaps his most uh, ambitious sequence, and it's worth giving it a read, if only to see the companion poem that he wrote in that collection to the Strand at Lochbeg. And in, and in the companion poem, um, his cousin he meets his cousin's ghost again, and his cousin's ghost kind of calls bullshit to this poem, The Stranded Lochbeg. And you can see the self-consciousness and the self-awareness that sometimes was Heaney's weakness. It made him perhaps a bit too conservative to uh, or unwilling to address certain things because he knew uh, he knew how difficult it was to address certain uh, painful and personal or just uh, politically sensitive things, and so he didn't do it, or he only did it in a certain way. But also, he sort of does something that is very courageous, and he wonders, you know, what 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 are we doing here? My cousin has been murdered, and and I'm writing a poem about him. What, you know, um, how, how is that sufficient? Um, and he wonders about that, and he wonders what is the what, what what is the easy way out that that poets or creative people have to just simply say, "Well, this person was murdered, so I'll write a poem about them, or I will make a movie about them and dramatize it, or I will turn it into an editorial or, or something like that." Um, what does it mean to take the end of someone's life, the murder of someone, and to sort of make it an aesthetic thing with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, why are we called on to turn violence perhaps into something organized, something beautiful, um, and all the rest of it? And I think The Strand at Lochbeg is a wonderful bit of complication in Heaney. But the real core of Heaney, at least for me, is his 1991 book called Seeing Things, and the core of what Heaney was able to achieve himself is the 48-poem sequence that overall is called Squarings. It's 48 poems. Each of the poems is 
um, 12 lines long. And, and there's a lot of fun number play that, he do that goes on here. And I just wanted to read three poems from that collection because I think these are three of his best poems. And you can see where he came. This was published in 1991. And Personal Helicon, the first poem I read here, was published in 1966. And you can see how far he's come into simply doing autobiography, simply doing history in, a, in this amazing sort of transparent, uh, um, almost iambic pentameter. Um, somewhere in those interviews with Dennis O'Driscoll about the, this sequence, uh, this 48-poem sequence, he sort of realized there was a weight and that he was going to have this sequence of poems and that, it, and that they would so, sort of be loose and they would be autobiographical and that what he needed was the anchor, not just of the iambic pentameter line or some equivalent of it, but also of each poem just being 12 lines. And you can see what he does with the shape of things here. And so you think of Personal Helicon and you think of The Forge, the first two poems I began with, uh, where you have um, manual labor, uh, childhood memories, and then equating it with poetry. And look what he does here with the second poem in this sequence. This is probably my favorite poem of Seamus Heaney's. He says this, Roof it again, batten down, dig in, drink out of tin, know the scullery cold, a latch, a door bar, forged tongs, and a grate. Touch the crossbeam, drive iron in a wall, hang a line to verify the plumb, from lintel, coping stone, and chimney breast. Relocate the bedrock and the threshold. Take squarings from the recessed gable pane. Make your study the unregarded floor. Sink every impulse like a bolt. Secure the bastion of sensation. Do not waver into language. Do not waver in it. And the only thing I can say at the end of that is, is that I love that that's poem number two out of 48, where he is saying, don't waver into language, but that's what he does. That is what poets do. We waver into language. And then squaring is number eight, which seems to be the more well-known poem from the sequence, where he just takes a small paragraph out of the Irish annals, medieval Irish annals, and just makes a, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, an in, not an impenetrable poem, just a poem that you cannot knock down. Um, this is another one that will be read in hundreds of years. He just turns this into a great poem. And I believe this is the first poem of his that I ever saw, uh, sitting in, Apple, in a restaurant called Applewood in Geneva, Ohio, in, I believe, the winter of 1996, when a friend of mine showed me something about Seamus Heaney in the New York Times, and, and it included this poem. The annals say, when the monks of Clonmacnoiz were all at prayers inside the oratory, a ship appeared above them in the air. The anchor dragged along behind so deep 
it hooked itself into the altar rails. And then, as the big hull rocked to a standstill, a crewman shinned and grappled down the rope and struggled to release it. But in vain. This man can't bear our life here and will drown, the abbot said, unless we help him. So they did. The freed ship sailed, and the man climbed back out of the marvelous as he had known it. The man climbed back out of the marvelous as he had known it. And I think the first time I read this on this podcast, I, I made the note that this poem means a great deal to me because uh, late in grade school was when I first became interested in UFOs and things like that, and then I became attached to the X-Files when that started started up on TV. And uh, I first heard this story about the monks of Clonmacnoise and the ship in the air above them uh, in Whitley Strieber's book Communion, where he uses this story, not Heaney's poem, but the actual story itself uh, from the Irish annals as evidence that aliens have been among us for centuries and centuries. And that, to me, whatever you make of uh, that that idea, is just that it connects something that was uh, deeply vivid to me in my own childhood, and suddenly you find it uh, put into great poetry. And this is number 40 in the sequence. And this is Heaney going back to his childhood. He says, I was four, but I turned 400 maybe encountering the ancient, dampish feel of a clay floor, maybe 4,000 even. Anyhow, there it was, milk poured for cats in a rank puddle place, splash-darkened mold around the terracotta watercrock. Ground of being, body's deep obedience to all its shifting tenses, a half-door opening directly into starlight. Out of that earth house I inherited a stack of singular cold memory weights to load me hand and foot in the scale of things. And th imagine the, the Heaney of, uh, of his very first collection. Imagine Heaney of, um, of digging. Uh, saying anything quite so plain and quite so profound. Out of that earth house I inherited a stack of singular cold memory weights to load me hand and foot in the scale of things. Heaney is a poet who, uh, who never saw a reason to, to deny his home or to deny his past or to deny where he came from, he saw that even if the places that he came from uh, were not of any great artistic or literary weight, um, that didn't matter. There's a different kind of weight, uh, isn't there? And I think it's that kind of weight that Heaney was after all his life, uh, just shaping it into poetry. If you go back, if you go look at a book uh, edited by Kenneth Jackson from the Penguin Classic called A Celtic uh, Miscellany, um, where you have just hundreds of tiny little passages 
from the Celtic myths and other sources, just translated and organized by theme. That is where you'll find the original story of Squaring's number eight about the monks of Clonmacnoise. And if you read that paragraph and then read Heaney's poem, or if you read uh, P.V. Glob's book about the bog bodies and then read Heaney's poems, you can sort of see that that is uh, what he is doing. Um, he is turning perhaps plain prose into immaculate and unforgettable poetry. And throughout his career, he translated a great deal. And, uh, but the one he became most known for, of course, is Beowulf. And uh, Beowulf, his translation of Beowulf, was actually the first poem, uh, the first book of Heaney's that I ever owned. And this is also a sort of sentimental thing for me. Back in 2001 or so in the town that I was from, where there weren't really any bookstores other than the Walden Books and the Mall nearby. And suddenly a friend of a friend of a friend opened a new bookstore in town. And she didn't quite know what she was doing. And, and uh, all the teenagers, all the kids just out of high school and perhaps in their early 20s as I was, um, we went there to try and support this new book owner whose little bookshop was in the back of a video rental store. And uh, all of the books were full price because that's what she had to do. And so the one that I bought was Heaney's uh, translation of Beowulf. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, that is where I learned what Heaney was doing, that he decided to uh, try and adapt the language of, what does he say in the poem about his cousin? He tried to adapt the language of the big voice scullions, the herders, and the feelers round of haycocks and hindquarters, tried to adapt that language into poetry and even tried to do it into the language of Beowulf. And this is my favorite passage from the Beowulf that uh, Heaney translated. This is from the very end after Beowulf has been killed and uh, his funeral is taking place. And there is a woman there who uh, who was more, not, not just mourning for him, but just mourning for herself because she knows what the absence of a leader uh, will mean and the chaos that it will bring and likely the death that it will bring. And this is what Heaney says. The Geet people built a pyre for Beowulf, stacked and decked it until it stood four square, hung with helmets, heavy war shields, and shining armor, just as he had ordered. Then his warriors laid him in the middle of it, mourning a lord far-famed and beloved. On a height they kindled the hugest of all funeral fires. Fumes of wood smoke billowed darkly up. The blaze roared and drowned out their weeping. Wind died down, and flames wrought havoc in the hot bone house, burning it to the core. They were disconsolate, and wailed aloud for their lord's decease. And here is the, the, the mourning woman. A geet woman, too, sang out in grief. With hair bound up, she unburdened herself of her worst fears, a wild litany of nightmare and lament. Her nation invaded, enemies on the rampage, bodies in piles, slavery and debasement. Heaven swallowed the smoke. 
Then the Geat people began to construct a mound on a headland, high and imposing, a marker that sailors could see from far away, and in ten days they had done the work. It was their hero's memorial. What remained from the fire they housed inside it, behind a wall, as worthy of him as their workmanship could make it. And they buried torques in the barrow, and jewels, and a trove of such things as trespassing men had once dared to drag from the hoard. They let the ground keep that ancestral treasure, gold under gravel, gone to earth, as useless to men now as it ever was. Then twelve warriors rode round the tomb, chieftains' sons, champions in battle, all of them distraught, chanting in dirges, mourning his loss as a man and a king. They extolled his heroic nature and exploits, and gave thanks for his greatness, which was the proper thing. For a man should praise a prince whom he holds dear, and cherish his memory when that moment comes, when he has to be conveyed from his bodily home. So the Geet people, his hearth companions, sorrowed for the Lord who had been laid low. They said that of all the kings upon the earth, he was the man most gracious and fair-minded, kindest to his people, and keenest to win fame. And that is Seamus Heaney's take on that great, uh, great old English poem. And finally, we come to the last poem of Heaney's that, uh, if I only had to choose ten, this is, would be the tenth one. This comes from his last book called Human Chain. It is called Uncoupled. And he imagines his parents again. I can't think of another major poet who has spent so much time um, again, beginning with digging, where he imagines, I believe, his uncle or his grandfather and his father. Um, and then later on in that collection, there's a poem called Following, where he is sort of uh, the one getting things done now, and his father is the one following him across the field. Um, again, equating uh, uh, manual labor with the work of poetry. Um, and I believe, was it the Irish Times... Or was it RTE who voted uh, one of Heaney's sonnets about his mother, the greatest Irish poem, or their favorite poem, their favorite Irish poem published in the 20th century? So Heaney has written a great deal about his parents. And even here at the end of his life, he was born in 1939, and this collection was published in 2010, he is still writing about memories of his parents and the love of his parents and just about uh, family. There's, there's an amusing story about uh, Robert Lowell, who is near death, he has a few years left to live, uh, meeting Heaney in, in Ireland, or maybe, uh, yeah, it was in Ireland, Robert Lowell came to see him. And, um, and Lowell has had his issues, his issues with mental health, and he has left his wife and his child, his daughter, uh, for a woman that he met in England, and he's staying in England with her. And the story is that when he goes to visit Heaney, I believe, at home, um, Robert Lowell's surprised remark is just something like, wow, you sure spend a lot of time with your kids, don't you? Something like that. Um, so you see where Heaney always comes back to um, 
it is, as he says in that poem from Squarings, uh, he always goes back to a stack of singular cold memory weights to load me hand and foot in the scale of things. And what, what, other, what other weight is there other than family? And if you were lucky enough to have good parents, um, what other weight is there but the memory of the love of those good parents? So here he is uh, in two parts, just remembering his parents. And uh, this will be the last poem I read, and then we, I will follow it with uh, Heaney reading one of his own poems. I can't uh, figure out quite which one yet, but because um, there are so many, there's him reading everything, basically, that you can find. And uh, then we will call it a night. This is a poem called Uncoupled. Who is this coming to the ash pit, walking tall? as if in a procession, bearing in front of her a slender pan withdrawn just now from underneath the firebox, weighty, full to the brim with whitish dust and flakes, still sparkling hot, that the wind is blowing into her apron bib, into her mouth and eyes, while she proceeds unwavering, keeping her burden horizontal still, hands in a tight, sore grip, round the metal knob, proceeds until we have lost sight of her, where the worn path turns behind the hen house. Just a picture of his mother walking around the farmyard, and this is his father. Who is this, not much higher than the cattle, working his way towards me through the pen, his ash plant in one hand, lifted and pointing a stick of keel in the other, calling to where I'm perched on top of a shaky gate, waving and calling something I cannot hear, with all the lowing and roaring, lorries revving at the far end of the yard, the dealers shouting among themselves, and now to him, so that his eyes leave mine and I know the pain of loss before I know the term. The Tolerant Man Some day I will go to Aarhus to see his peat-brown head, the mild pods of his eyelids, his pointed skin cap. In the flat country nearby where they dug him out, his last gruel of winter seeds caked in his stomach, naked except for the cap, noose and girdle, I will stand a long time. Bridegroom to the goddess. She tightened her torque on him and opened her fen. Those dark juices working him to a saint's kept body. Trove of the turf cutter's honeycombed workings. Now his stained face reposes at Orhos. I could risk blasphemy. Consecrate the cauldron bog, our holy ground and pray him to make germinate the scattered, ambushed flesh of labourers, 
stocking corpses laid out in the farmyards, telltale skin and teeth flecking the sleepers of four young brothers trailed for miles along the lines. Something of his sad freedom as he rode the tumbrel should come to me, driving, saying the names Tolond, Graubau, Nabelgord, watching the pointing hands of country people, not knowing their tongue. Out there in Jutland, in the old man-killing parishes, I will feel lost, unhappy and at home. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.